like to invite our friends who are heading to the toddler nursery and children's church to be dismissed at this time. Those of you who will remain in the sanctuary, if you would please turn to Leviticus chapter 16. I know I have mentioned possibly doing 16 and 17 together, but um, thought it would be best to split those two apart. Leviticus chapter 16. Beginning in verse 1, now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. And Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body and he shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with the linen turban. These are holy garments. And then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall take two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one uh, lot for the Lord and the other for the other lot for the scapegoat. And then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat for which the lot of the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement upon it and to send it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and to make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. He shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord, two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony. Otherwise, he will die. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. And then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do this and do with its blood what he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions uh, in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. And when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all of the assembly of Israel. And then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar and on all sides. With his finger, he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it. And from the impurities of the sons of Israel, consecrate it. And when he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. And then Aaron shall lay both of, both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all of the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who stands in readiness. And the goat shall bear on itself all of their iniquities to a solitary land. And he shall release the goat into the wilderness. 
Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And then he shall offer up and smoke the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The one who released the goat as a scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterwards he shall come into the camp. But the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make an atonement in the holy place shall be taken outside the camp and they shall burn their hides, their flesh and their refuse and fire. And then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterward he shall come into the camp. This shall be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you, and you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. And he shall thus put on the linen garments and the holy uh, and the holy garments and make atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall also make atonement for the priests, for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. And just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. Father, thank you for the great impact that it has in our lives. Father, today as we uh, look at this this greatest festival expression, this greatest act of worship that is given to the nation of Israel. Father, this great day of atonement. Father, let us see and revel in the glory of your son, Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. So this morning, we come to essentially the center of the book of Leviticus. And... We have the scapegoat that is part of the concept of the Day of Atonement. Now, before we kind of walk through the basics of the Day of Atonement, I want to to make a note. If you've paid much attention at all, or if you have any understanding at all about the, the current condition of things in the nation of Israel among Hebrew people, who are still classically orthodox and following their faith. Um, They grieve greatly because since the destruction of the temple in AD 70, they have been incapable of participating in the Day of Atonement. Uh, the, The Wailing Wall, though it's been morphed into something different than that now for some people, um is a place where a slight remnant of the temple area is left and people go there. And it's, again, it's turned into all manner of things now. But historically, it was a place where Orthodox and traditional Jews would come and mourn the fact that they didn't have a temple in which to participate in the required Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement can be argued uh, that that it and it alone is the most substantial act of worship commanded for the Jewish people in all of the Old Testament. 
while it's true that they have other festivals and other feast days and other high holy days and celebration of the Passover and a vast variety of other kinds of things, things that don't have to be done in the temple complex properly. This is the one day where the nation of Israel would be able to come together around the sacrificial system that had been established by the Lord and the entire nation would have all of their sins forgiven for at least that one day. It's pretty significant. This is where we get, and you saw it, and we'll kind of walk through some of this in a moment, of the high priest entering into the high holy place one day out of the year and not going in there any other days out of the year because there were other places to make sacrifices besides that area. We don't have it here, but in tradition we know that eventually they would tie a rope around the foot of the high priest who would go into that space in case he died, like it says here in Leviticus, because nobody else could go in there and get him. They'd have to use the rope to drag him out as kind of a precaution. There's a space under the temple mount where they think the actual last stone that's on the ground of the temple is different from the wall. And there are people, when I was in Israel a few years ago, saw someone standing there at this one rock, this one piece of stone. And I asked the guy that was guiding us, what is this woman doing? And he said, they believe that this is the actual historical last piece of foundation left from the original temple. And she's mourning the fact That for 2,000 years, they've not been able to have the Day of Atonement. And that for 2,000 years, the nation of Israel's sins have not been forgiven. So, I start with that little historical background because I want you to feel the weight of what it is that's being commanded to be done here. Those who still follow traditionally Orthodox Judaism grieve deeply over the fact that they are not in fulfillment of the command of God to have their sins properly forgiven because they cannot properly perform the Day of Atonement. There is no tabernacle. There is no temple. There is no mercy seat. There is no ordained altar in which this can take place. And for those who take seriously their Judaism, this is an incredible burden to them. They grieve deeply that technically speaking, per the written law of God, they stand at fault before the Lord, basically in perpetualness. Because they cannot have their sins properly forgiven. That's the mindset that they have. So let's walk through the basics of this incredible high day for the Jewish people. So Aaron would have to make a a series of offerings. He would have to make offerings for himself and he would have to go through some ritual purity along the way. So there was a bull and a ram that Aaron would have to offer. And Aaron would have to offer the bull and the ram for his own sins. He would have to purify himself with a sin and a burnt offering. And as he prepared to approach the place to make this offering, he would have to do a ritual washing and then he would have to put on the proper holy attire to enter into this place to make this sacrifice. And so we have a, a priest who is not pure, 
A priest who himself is a sinner, a priest who himself is not worthy to stand before the Lord. And he would have to cleanse himself, clothe himself in basically a form of righteousness, righteous garments. And then he would have to offer a sacrifice to purify himself from his own sins. Then he could start to make an offering for the people. And the offering for the people is incredibly unique. And we saw a version of this with the the two live birds for the healing of leprosy, kind of a foreshadowing of this. But there's two male goats that are brought. One is to be a sacrificial sin offering. It's supposed to be a blood offering, offering of blood before the Lord. The other is to be what's known as the scapegoat. Now, we could get lost in the weeds of what that word means. It's a really, really weird Hebrew word. It has a lot of odd meanings in other Hebrew texts that aren't the scripture. Um, please don't go home and Google it. Usually I tell you go home and Google it. Don't go home and Google it. You, you, it runs down like we, like demon male goat and all kinds. It's like all kinds of weird theories about what this means and you know, where the Hebrew people actually you know, participating in some sort of pagan ritual. Like there's all kinds of crazy stuff out there. It was just very confusing. Let's just go with the classic concept of scapegoat. Like that, that's the best translation. So one of the translations has been in English since a really long time. It's really the best way for us to understand this concept. And so what would happen is they would bring these two goats and they would cast lots. And after the casting of lots, they would have one goat that received the lot of sacrifice. The other lot, uh, goat received the lot of being the scapegoat. They would make the sacrifice of the goat that received that lot. And then the other goat, they would lay their hands on its head and they would confess the sins of the nation on the goat. Now, there's a lot of theories about how that looked. If it was a set prayer, if it eventually became a set prayer, or if it was just a, I'm just going to start confessing lots and lots of sins and it took a long time. There's a lot of theories about what that looked like. I could suspect that if it was a a, a from the heart sort of thing and not like a set prayer of confession, you could be there for a while if you're confessing the sins of a whole nation onto a goat. Just saying. It's one really chill goat to be there that long. I'm I'm just, you know, because I know it would take a while to confess my sins. And just because I'm snarky, it would take me even longer to confess yours. No, I'm kidding. Probably would take me less time to confess yours, if we're going to be honest about it. And then what they would do is they'd bring the one goat in for the sacrifice. And between the bull and the ram and the goat, there's all this sprinkling of blood and putting blood all over everything. And then the the as is... Customary from the instructions of the sacrifices in the first six chapters of Leviticus, they would carry the hide of the bull and its refuse and other thing. They burn it outside of the camp and they would pour blood in other places. And so it's just this, just a ginormous bloody mess of combining all of the elements of many of the other sacrifices that we've seen to this point. And then they would confess those sins on the other goat. And someone who had been set to be this individual would lead that goat away from the tabernacle out into the wilderness and would release that goat alive to carry the sins of the people away from the camp. That's what they would do. Of course, no one thought for a moment 
that that goat would live long. It was a domesticated animal. It had not lived in the wild. It was being released to where wild animals were and no one was there to take care of it. It would have no shepherd. It would have no caregiver. It would have no access to the things it had when it was being domesticated. It was being led out essentially to die with the people's sins outside of the camp. Sounds kind of familiar. Those of you who are keeping score. And then they would anoint all of the stuff with blood And then after all of it was done, the priest, the guy who helped carry the the bull carcass outside of the camp, the guy who helped lead the goat outside of the camp, they would have to cleanse themselves in a ritual washing and change their clothes and then they could come back into the camp. And then everyone's sins will have been forgiven. And what's intriguing and very important for what we're going to discuss in a moment is that this was a permanent statute. On a particular day of the year, seventh month, the tenth day of the month. And it did not matter what day of the week this fell on. It was declared to be a Sabbath day. Didn't matter if it was a seventh day or not. As the actual week went. This was a special Sabbath day. No one did any work. People prepared to make themselves holy. They did all of the Sabbath things on this day. So, why is this such a significant thing? Why is this such an important thing? Well, the concept of atonement, when truly broken down, means to be made, essentially to be made right with God. That's what it means. And this was the one day out of where the entire nation of Israel was made right with God. That's a big deal. To know that for that one day, the whole nation is declared righteous before the Lord. And then, of course, you go to sleep and you wake up the next day and you start all over again. You start bringing all the other sacrifices because, well, that day's done. Because it didn't travel past that day. But for that one day, the whole nation made right before the Lord. Celebrating it in sacrifice. A goat sent off into the wilderness to carry their sins away. Another goat sacrificed. A bull and a ram sacrificed for the priesthood. Ritual washing and purity. And a special Sabbath given so that people could make themselves holy like a Sabbath day would be holy in declaration in God's law. So what are the elements here that we have? Well, they having they are having legitimately and meaningfully their sins forgiven. And not only their sins forgiven, but their sins forgiven in such a way that they are in right standing with God. They're not neutral. This is a positive reality. They are in right standing with God. So let's 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 just kind of venture a little bit. Flip over, if you will, to Luke. I want us to see Christ as the fulfillment of this great day of atonement. Because this is the ultimate, hear me this morning, it's all downhill from here in the book of Leviticus. This is the ultimate reality of the book of Leviticus. There's a reason why when it was written, 
it was written in such a way that this is kind of the central story of the whole book. If you're following along and paying very close attention, the location of the law for the Day of Atonement doesn't make sense in where it's located in the book of Leviticus. In fact, Moses, in writing this, had to give a descriptor as to when this actually took place because it's not following chronology. Remember when Aaron's sons died way early on when they had that first celebration of something very much like this. And he said, this is the instruction he gave to Aaron when his sons died. So this actually should be pushed further back in the book of Leviticus. And if you read through Leviticus 16 and 17 in particular, because 17 is related to 16. If you were to pull those two out and drop them in the chapter around the time of the death of Aaron's sons, place them there and then read the rest of Leviticus, it actually flows better if you do that. Because chapter uh, 15 that we saw last time actually makes a lot more sense if you read chapter 18 right after. Just because the stuff is similar, the topics are similar to each other. But... Not constrained like we are to write things in an orderly fashion. The ancients could write things in such a way to where the actual location of stories was significant. And so the thing in the middle is usually the thing that's most important. I know in our culture, it's usually the thing either at the beginning or at the end. But in ancient writing, in ancient culture, usually the thing in the middle is of greatest substance. And so they held off, Moses held off, and dropped the story of the atonement right in the middle of the book of Leviticus. Because he wanted the people who would study this from this culture going forward to say, ah, this is the most important thing that's going on here in this book of laws. So, let's see Christ as a fulfillment of this. First, Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 20. This is the story of paralytic, wonderful friends that they had. They were carrying their paralyzed friend. They couldn't get in. They climbed up. They dug a hole in the roof. They dropped their friend in the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. And then in verse 20, it says, seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Now. We've heard that story so much that it's not shocking to us anymore, if it ever was. Because we're hearing that story in the ears of 20th, 21st century Western American Christians who've been hearing this story forever. We're coming with the presupposition as Christians that Christ is God, the incarnation, the divine reality of the second person of the Trinity And it's just kind of rolling off of our brains that Jesus would forgive someone's sins. We need to hear this story with the ears of first century Jewish people. There's no incarnation. There's no idea of the second person of the Trinity. There's no God in the flesh. These are foreign concepts to them. Stuff that they would consider blasphemous. Things that they would think are ridiculous. There's no way that these can be true. 
The only entity in all of existence that can forgive sins is God and God alone. And you are a carpenter's son who we have questions about your parentage. You're a a, a nobody from the backside of nowhere to an unknown family. And you've been doing some wild stuff, but come on. God, you are not. That would have been what they heard when Jesus said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. It would have been shocking to everyone in the room. Every hey, even the guy who he's healing. He hasn't healed the guy yet, but I guarantee you, even that guy is kind of like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. I just my buddies just wanted to see if you can make me better. I didn't want to get caught up in the middle of all this blasphemy and people start throwing rocks. You know, I mean, I I don't want to do that. Like, you really might be about to get stoned to death in the middle of this crowd. And I'm already kind of messed up. I don't need any extra problems, okay? Like, I can't walk. I can't move. People got to carry me around. I don't need to be hit by anything. Please, like, let's... Can you do that whole Jesus heals me thing and, like, let's not make this controversial? This would have been really weird for everyone in the room. In fact, as you continue in the story, look what it says. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying... Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God can do it. And there's a way that God does it. And it's through the sacrificial system that we offer in the temple. And it's most recognized on the day of atonement. That's how God forgives us of our sins. Not standing here in somebody's house in the middle of a crowd preaching a sermon where some guys want their buddy to be healed and he just announces that your sins are forgiven. That's not how God does it. He does it through the ritual ceremony system that we have. Who is this guy? What does he think he's doing? And then notice what Jesus does. This is so great. But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven you? Or to say, get up and walk? What an awesome question, by the way. Like that actually still flies in our modern culture today. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or stand up and walk? Give it a shot if you'd like to. If they'll let you into the hospital to go see people that you don't know. Go find somebody who's paralyzed at the hospital. Go into their room and tell them that their sins are forgiven and then tell them to stand up and walk and find out which one's easier to do. By the way, it's easier to tell somebody their sins are forgiven. It's really hard to walk into a room where somebody's genuinely hurt and tell them to Not be hurt anymore. Really hard. There's a lot of charlatans in the world who try to do that on TV. A lot of healing that takes place in the name of Jesus that's not actually taking place. And so Jesus just throws it down. He says, hey, so that you may know, verse 24, that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. Now, remember, 
first century Jewish mindset. How are your sins forgiven through the ritual sacrifices of the temple? The fulfillment of the book of Leviticus. That is how our sins are forgiven. Most specifically, the day of atonement. And Jesus looks at them and says, so that you know that I have the authority to do this thing that you think only the ritual sacrifice and ceremonies can do. I'm going to show you what I'm capable of. I'm going to show you what I can do in an even greater way than your ritual sacrifices can do. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher and go home. And immediately he got up before them, picked up what he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God. Jesus was making a declaration in that moment. Your ritual sacrifices don't forgive anyone of any sin. They make you have ritual purity before God for the moment that it happens. And then the next day you have to do it again. And even on your great and remarkable day of atonement, as soon as that day is over, you have to start over again. But if you want your sins to truly be forgiven, I have the authority to do that. So much so that I will do for this man what no priest could ever do for him. I will heal his broken body to prove to you that I'm also able to heal his broken soul. And friends, that guy got up and he walked away. And notice what they say in verse 26, understatement of the year. They were all struck with astonishment. No kidding. And they began glorifying God and they were all filled with fear. Really? I would be. I'd be a little uneasy. Saying we have seen remarkable things today. Friends, Jesus is able to forgive sin. And I remember when I was there in that underground cavern. And that woman was dressed in head to toe in solid black with her face covered. And she was pressed with her nose almost touching that rock. And you could hear her mumbling a prayer. And you could hear that she was crying as she prayed. And I asked the man, what is she praying? And he essentially said that she's praying a prayer of brokenness. Because she doesn't believe that she can stand right before God. Because the ritual can't be done. And I wasn't allowed to. It wasn't at the time or place to. I would not have had the linguistic capability to. And the guide said he wouldn't translate for me if I tried to. But everything in me wanted to walk up to that woman at that wall and say, my dear 
lady. Jesus is your atonement and he can forgive you of all your sins. Because that's what he does. The day of atonement and its main purpose of forgiving people of their sins and making them right with God has been fully completed in the authority of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. Flip with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. We can back up to verse 19 to get a little extra context. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats and the water and the scarlet wool and the hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded. That's a throwback to Exodus chapter 24. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. And according to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood. Hear me. There is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of these things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. This is reference to the day of atonement. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after that comes their judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference for sin to those who eagerly await him. Jesus is the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. You don't have to kill anything else to have your sins forgiven. Praise God. I don't have to have a ritual washing. I don't have to put on special clothing. I don't have to recite some special verbiage. I don't have to find some kind of animal, the right kind of animal at the right time in the right space in the right place and give it to the right person. He doesn't have to sprinkle the blood in a certain kind of way in a certain sort of order. I don't have to bring the right kind of incense. I don't have to bring the right kind of drink offering. I don't have to make sure that the right kinds of coals are burning on the right kind of altar poured on by the right kind of bowl. None of that matters anymore because Jesus has made a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And when I come to him and he makes me clean, I am clean indeed. It's good. It's good. Friends, the day of atonement, as important as it was. In the Jewish tradition, as important as it was in the book of Leviticus, as profoundly important as it was throughout their rich tradition and heritage, is 
insignificant in comparison to the glory of the sacrifice that Christ has made. Because Christ entered into that holy place, that true holy place, the presence of God himself one time. And never his sacrifice was so worthy and so great that it never has to be made again. And it didn't just cleanse you for that day. Didn't just cleanse you for that year. But it cleanses you for everlasting. And then finally, flip back with me to Romans chapter 3. Jesus himself is our atoning sacrifice. Romans chapter 3 is perhaps one of the most profoundly offensive chapters in all of the Bible. If you haven't read Romans chapter 3 in a while, I encourage you to do so from the start. I'd actually say go back to Romans chapter 1, pick up along about verse 18, and read through the end of that chapter, all of chapter 2, and then through chapter 3, stopping at along about, say, uh, verse 19. And if you're not overwhelmingly offended about what it has to say about how wretchedly sinful and wicked you are, then read it again, because that's how you're supposed to come out after you've read that. You're supposed to feel pretty bad about yourself. You say, Philip, this is not the way you're supposed to do this. I know my church growth guy would be spinning circles right now. What are you doing? That's not how you grow your church. Okay, well, we're not worried about growing the church. We're worried about Christ growing his kingdom. And this is how it works. We come to a realization of how sinful we are before a holy God. That there's none righteous, verse 10, none who understands, none who seeks God. Everyone has turned aside. No one does good. Not even one. Our very throats are open graves. This is our condition before the Lord. And we need to be justified and we need to be declared righteous. And we can't do it in our own strength and power because we are broken and we are under the wrath of God. It's been revealed to us from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. Going back to Romans chapter 1. And then we hit verse 21 of chapter 3. It says, but now. Because in verse 20 it said, the law brings us knowledge of sin. That's all that it does for us. Hear me, please hear me this morning, dear friend. If you're striving in your own strength to try to have some sort of checklist that would make you right before God, all that the law of God does is show you that you are a sinner. It will not save you. It won't do it. And you can break out your checklist and you can mark off all the things that you feel like you did right. All the code that you felt like you kept. And all that will do is condemn you even more. Look what it says. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Here it is. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, propitiation, wrath bearing sacrifice, atoning Sacrifice. This is making reference to the day of atonement. 
in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Hear me this morning. There must be a wrath bearing sacrifice an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation in his blood. Let's look and see how much more superior in every way the atoning work of Jesus is compared to Leviticus chapter 16. In Leviticus chapter 16, this work was done where? Inside the holy place. In secret, where only the high priest could see it. No one else could see what was going on in there. Unless God stayed true to his word and killed him for doing it wrong. For all we know, the guy could have gone in there and taken a nap. I doubt it. But no one knows. One person was able to go in there. The only evidence that we have that he did any of the stuff he was supposed to do is when he drug the carcasses back out. But what does it say about Jesus? Whom, verse 25, God displayed publicly. Everyone saw the death of Jesus. I am dying that your sins might be forgiven. And it's not being done in a secret place. It's not being done in a hiding place. It's being done out in front of everyone outside of the camp. And if you remember on the day that Christ died, what happened to the veil that kept us from seeing the holy place of God? It was torn in two from top to bottom. And God said, you want to see my glory? There he is hanging on that cross. You want forgiveness of your sins? There he is hanging on that cross. You want to be clothed in the righteous garb of the high priest? You want to be ritually cleansed in the purification washing? You want to have your sins atoned for? You want to stand before me in a right way, in a right place forever and evermore, being declared to be my children, close to me, seated on thrones with me, robed in glory with me, crowned in righteousness with me, given life by me? Then look at the who is slain from the foundation of the world. See him with your own eyes. There is your atoning sacrifice. It's better in every way. Better in every way. And friend, I'll tell you something. I'll tell you something else. They would pray over that one scapegoat and they would send him off into the wilderness with the sins of the people carried off. They'd never see that goat again. Never would come back. And they'd have to make another sacrifice the next year and they'd have to kill another goat and they'd have to send another one off and the priest would have to kill another bull and they'd have to take it outside the camp and they'd have to do it over and over and over again. Friends, this goat that carried away our sins came back. He left with the sins of the people and when he showed back up in his resurrection, He said, I left that stuff someplace else. I didn't bring it back with me. 
I have made a public display of the powers and principalities on the cross. And I have nailed the certificate of guilt to the cross. And it is here no more. Your sin died with me is what Jesus said. And now I have returned. And I am pure like I was before your sin ever landed on me. And you can be pure with me. Because you have participated in my death. And now I'm going to let you participate in my resurrection. Superior in every way. And friend, this morning, if you know Christ, if you've repented of your sins, if you've believed on him, he has carried your sin as far as the east is from the west. Because of the work that Christ has done, the father remembers your sin no more. And that means right now, this very moment, you say this is ivory tower, this is high theology. What difference does this really make in my life? Whatever it is that you're going through right now. That broken relationship. That thing with your kid, that thing with your parent, that thing with your spouse, that thing at work, that addiction that you have. That struggle that you're wrestling with, that thing that you just don't feel like you can shake. Friend, hear me this morning. If you're in Christ, he's carried that off. That does not have to have victory over to over you. That doesn't have to mark you. You don't have to be known by that. Your identity doesn't have to be bound up in the sin that you struggle with. Christ has given you victory and freedom over your sin. That's what he's done. That's what he's done. And friend, if you're here this morning. And you're just not sure. I just I just don't know if God can love me. I don't know if God could forgive me. I don't know if God could make me whole. You have no idea what I've done. You have no idea what I've been through. You have no idea what my life has been like. You know how dark my heart is, how dirty my hands are. Friends, hear me this morning. There is no sin greater than the grace of God in Christ Jesus. If the cry of your heart is, I don't know if Christ can redeem me because my sin is so great. You are just the one that he can save. Because which one is easier to say? Stand up and walk. Or your sins have been forgiven. And friends, he can make them stand up and walk. The physically harder thing to do. Friends, what he did on the cross, he can look right into the depths of your soul. And all the darkness that you find there. And he can make you new. Say, well, what do I have to do? (laughs) Praise God, absolutely nothing. Acknowledge your sin. What do I bring to this? Your sin. That's what you bring. An acknowledgement that you are a rebellious sinner in need of a savior. That's all you bring. 
You say, well, I've, I've loved Jesus for a long time, but I'm struggling with some sin now. That sin that so easily besets me, that thing that's falling apart, and I won't yield and they won't yield. And it's just this horrible struggle that's going on in my life and these problems and these difficulties and the, and the whatever, you know, and I'm just, I just don't know if I'm going to be able to get through. Friends, the answer never changes. God loves us enough to keep it incredibly easy. You bring your sin. Whether you don't know Christ at all or you've known Christ for 50 years, what do you bring? You bring your sin. And what does Jesus bring? Forgiveness of your sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who loves us and cleanses us and forgives us of our unrighteousness. That's what he does. He has made the ultimate forever sacrifice for sin. You have nothing that you have to do to make God pleased with you because there's nothing that you can do to make God pleased with you. Yet hear me this morning, my dear friend, God is pleased with Christ and Christ has reached his hand out to you. And when you by faith and by repentance come into Christ, God doesn't see you anymore. He sees Jesus. And with Jesus, he is well pleased. Jesus himself is praying. To the father right now, making intercession for his people, the same high priestly prayer he prayed in John. Father, love them with the same love with which you love me. The Father, friend, hear me this morning, in your faith and in your repentance under the power of the gospel, the Father loves you the same way he loves his Son. Holy and completely. Friends, that is a far superior atonement than anything you'll find in Leviticus chapter 16. Praise God. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this great work of Christ. Father, thank you for the compassion and the grace and the majesty of his sacrifice. Father, for those of us who know him, Father, let our hearts be overwhelmed with gratitude at the glory and splendor of the work of Christ on our behalf. This excellent and permanent and everlasting atonement. And Father, for those who are still lost in darkness, Father, by your grace and for your glory, give them eyes to see and ears to hear and remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh and draw them in to the glory of Christ our King. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response together this morning. Savior, say thy strength.